Hey everyone, it is 2020, and I can't tell you how strange it is to be saying that. Welcome to the January issue of Amplify. I'm your host, Sam Mishu. Before we dive into this month's issue, I want to take just a couple of moments and encourage all of you who are listening to click on the link in the show notes that will take you to our survey. We take feedback very seriously, and we're earnestly seeking some of your opinions on some new changes we might make to the podcast. So take just a moment. I promise it will take you one minute or less to take this survey. It is super easy, and it is very helpful. While you're doing that, check out the January issue of Emergency Medicine Practice. This month, it's on non-ST segment elevation myocardial infarction and written by Drs. Juliana Young and Sharon Board. Once again, an outstanding issue. I don't know about you, but I personally take non-STEMI and chest pain for granted. We see it all the time, and so much has been written about chest pain in the ED, but actually for quite a good reason. It is the second most common complaint. It brings over 6.4 million visits to emergency departments in the U.S. every year. About 25% of them are diagnosed with acute coronary syndrome. Out of those patients, a third will have a STEMI, and two-thirds have the non-ST elevation MI. So really, we're talking about a large group of people. So what do national guidelines and clinical research have to say about the NSTEMI or non-STEMI population? Well, doctors Juliana Young and Sharon Board did an outstanding job this month sifting through guidelines from the American Heart Association and the American College of Cardiology, the American College of Emergency Physicians, and the European Society of Cardiology, in addition to reviewing the primary literature that each one of them used as a basis for their recommendations. But before we dive into all those recommendations, let's go over just a few of the confusing but necessary definitions. Part 1. Definitions. The one we're all familiar with is myocardial infarction, and that's defined as elevated biomarkers, cardiac biomarkers, uh, that's the troponin, with clinical evidence of acute myocardial ischemia, which is really signs and symptoms and EKG changes or abnormal coronary imaging or coronary thrombosis at cath or even at autopsy. That's myocardial infarction. That's a definition we're familiar with. Now, the guidelines also include a definition for myocardial injury, which unfortunately is also abbreviated MI. I don't like that at all. But myocardial injury is a term that refers solely to the cases where the biomarkers are elevated, but not with any other clinical evidence for ischemia. And that's really not what we're talking about today, but I felt the need to bring it up because it is in these guidelines. Also important to mention is that differentiating STEMI from non-STEMI relies solely on the ECG findings. The most recent definition of this actually comes to us from the European Society of Cardiology's fourth universal definition of myocardial infarction. I know that's a publication you've read already, but just for summary purposes, it was published in 2018, and they define STEMI as one of two findings. The first is the one we're all familiar with, that's ST elevation greater than or equal to a millimeter in two or more contiguous leads, but they exclude V2 and V3. Because in their second definition, they break down some age criteria for ST elevation in those two leads. And that's really men less than 40 years old have to have more than or equal to two and a half millimeters in V2 and V3. Men older than 40 years old, only two millimeters. And women 
regardless of age, only one and a half millimeters. So there's a scale for SD elevation in V2 and V3. Otherwise, it's the standard definition we're all aware of. And one last definition I want you to be aware of, as we review the evidence that doctors Young and Board have assembled for us, we're gonna be talking about MACE. MACE is Major Adverse Cardiovascular Events. This has become the new standard for defining whether or not an intervention has a clinically useful outcome when it comes to patient care. So for the purposes of this review, Major adverse cardiovascular events includes things like reinfarction, stroke, dysrhythmia, heart failure, cardiogenic shock, and death. These are the clinical outcomes we care about, and these are the ones that are relevant to patients. So we talk about MACE. Part 2. Why we care. Okay, so why do we care? This is a good question. In-hospital mortality rates are about the same for STEMI and non-STEMI, and they're hovering around 10%. But it turns out that the one-year fatality rate in NSTEMI is more than double that of STEMI. And that's about 25%. Yeah, I said fatality. So that's why we care. This is data published in the American Journal of Medicine in 2011. And I said 25%. That's a significant number of people. Part 3. Pathophysiology. There is a great section about pathophysiology in the issue, which we're not going to spend a lot of time dealing with, except to bring up one specific point. Whenever we talk about MI, that's myocardial infarction, we've got to clarify what we mean by that. The European Society of Cardiology, in that fourth definition, did a great job detailing six different kinds of MI, and most of them have no relevance whatsoever to emergency medicine. The only ones really of importance to us are the type 1 and the type 2, which is the one we hear a lot of our colleagues in the remainder of the hospital talking about. The remaining ones, 4 through 6, are really classifications for things related to uh, death after coronary occlusion, uh, bypass-related MI, and other procedural complications. Type 1 MI is the one that we're the most familiar with. This is insufficient coronary blood flow related to atherosclerotic plaque rupture. This occludes the coronary flow, can occur at any time, even if the underlying plaque is mild, and this is the reason why we don't rely on prior cardiac caths that show no critical lesions to rule out the possibility of ACS. Now, that's an important point, so I'm going to clarify that for one second. We don't rely on prior cardiac caths showing no critical lesions to exclude acute coronary syndrome from the patient's current presentation. That means if I look back at their heart cath and it says ah, they had some mild disease or moderate disease and this was conducted three, four months ago and they're now here with crushing substernal chest pain, I'm not going to look at this patient and go, well, I know it's not acute coronary syndrome because your cath showed only mild disease. For type 1 MI, even a mild plaque can rupture and cause acute thrombosis. So they still need the rest of the evaluation. Type 2 MI is a different beast. This is the one we hear our colleagues in the hospital talk about because it's ultimately diagnosed later. And this is the mismatch MI. This is the entity where our patient had an imbalance in oxygen supply and demand in the myocardium. 
This can be the result of lots of things, hypotension, severe tachycardia, sepsis, pulmonary embolism, really anything that's going to reduce blood flow to the myocardium enough to cause injury. Now, these patients turn out to have a higher hospital mortality and are more likely to die from this non-cardiac cause. So it's not that they're not sick. It's just that the underlying pathophysiology for their MI is different. And this is actually not the focus of the issue. The issue this month is on the type 1 MI and the NSTEMI population who's having that type 1 MI. Interestingly, if you're looking at the issue, on page four, there's a chart, and it tells us that these patients who have NSTEMIs from a type 1 MI are actually more likely to have absence of any other serious medical conditions, they have fewer comorbidities, they present with chest pain or some kind of anginal equivalent, and they have ECG changes of ST depression or elevation and higher troponin levels. And more commonly, they have some kind of acute coronary occlusion due to plaque rupture, ulceration, or some kind of vessel dissection associated with a thrombus. Part 4. Pre-hospital care. All right, all right. Enough with the pathophysiology. Let's talk about evaluation and treatment. There's a nice section in the issue about pre-hospital care, and this is really what we already do in most standard EMS systems. There's not any good, high-quality evidence for pre-hospital care or transport in NSTEMI specifically, uh, but that doesn't mean it doesn't help, just that we need more evidence for that specific population. So much of what we do is extrapolated from the STEMI population. And there is evidence in that arena that shows that pre-hospital ECGs decrease time to intervention, Early administration of aspirin decreases mortality and complications from all types of MI, uh, and that it's safe to give in the pre-hospital setting. Interestingly, only 45% of patients are getting it during EMS transport, so there is some room for improvement there. And then there are other standard interventions that we'll talk about more later on when we get to the ED treatment section, but that includes things like oxygen and nitrates and opioids if necessary, but more to come on that in a moment. Part 5, ED Evaluation. When they finally get to the emergency department, there are a couple of things that we're going to look for. Is there some magic bullet of specific symptoms that's going to diagnose acute coronary syndrome based on history? No, absolutely not. There is some conflicting data about what historical elements are important, but suffice it to say, there's a good UK study that shows that people who complain about diaphoresis or vomiting or radiation of pain to both arms or shoulders or radiation to the right side, the right shoulder, uh, have a higher association with acute MI. And although the teaching has been that women have atypical presentations, a 2016 study actually didn't support it. So we find that elderly patients and those with diabetes can present atypically, but that there's not as significant a gender differentiation as we used to believe. Past medical history is also important. There are some historical elements there. We should be collecting things like, is there a family or personal history of coronary disease? Do they have other medical problems like the diabetes I mentioned earlier? Do they smoke? Do they use illicit substances? And I will add in this section two other things I personally like to ask about. Do they have HIV? Because there is evidence that HIV does increase your risk for coronary disease even early in age. And second, do they have a history of any kind of malignancy that's required radiation to the chest? Both of those things will increase your risk of developing premature coronary disease. 
Exam findings are fairly common and straightforward, and I'd like to point out three things here. One, neurological deficits or unequal pulses might suggest an aortic dissection. Second, the authors mentioned that a friction rub may be heard in pericarditis. And third, a new murmur can represent papillary muscle rupture, which is associated with MI. So three things to keep in mind for the exam. Otherwise, a standard exam is common. And then we move on to the actual diagnostic portion of the evaluation. Telemetry always comes up, and that's because we tend to put all of our chest pain patients on cardiac telemetry or monitoring in the ED. And this is an important distinction from inpatient telemetry. If you know that the patient has an NSTEMI, that is, they have some worrisome ECG changes with no ST elevation and a positive troponin, and you are admitting this person to the hospital, this population is not in the low-risk chest pain population that we talk about when we say, well, we could just skip over telemetry. These patients actually need telemetry. Now, often when we're doing our initial assessment in the emergency department, we don't know what their ECG is showing. We don't know what the troponin's showing yet. And so everybody gets cardiac telemetry. If you catch from the patient that this is a very low-risk presentation, it's okay to wait as long as you're going to go back and apply it once you know. The ECG, of course, is the crux to differentiating STEMI from non-STEMI. And this issue does an outstanding job reviewing patterns of ECG changes that we should find concerning and worrisome for STEMI. So ST elevation, we talked about the definition and the specific lead changes. ST depression greater than or equal to half a millimeter in two contiguous leads is worrisome. Wellens syndrome, there's some great ECGs in the issue describing the deep symmetric T-wave inversion or the biphasic T-waves you get in the precordial leads. This is associated with proximal LED occlusion and portends some kind of impending MI, not NSTEMI. So an important thing to keep an eye on. Scarbosa criteria for ECG changes in the setting of left bundle branch block. This is also important and an outstanding summary is in the issue with pictures. So concordant ST elevation of a millimeter or more, concordant ST depression of a millimeter or more, and discordant ST elevation of at least 25% of the QRS height. Again, you don't need to hear me babble on about this. Go take a look at the pictures in the issue. De Winter's pattern 2% of LAD occlusions had ST depression at the J point and tall peak T waves and were noted to have a STEMI equivalent in the 2008 study that first publicized the DeWinter pattern. And lastly, there are some things that are left main patterns. So this is evidence for critical disease at the left main coronary artery. And this involves three findings, ST elevation more than a millimeter in AVR and elevation in V1 that's actually slightly lower than an AVR, and diffuse ST depression. This triad is really the crux of diagnosing left main disease and is a worrisome finding on ECG as well. Troponins, of course, you're going to check these. These are the standard cardiac biomarkers. You should get them. Better yet, get two of them. If you have access to high sensitivity troponins, there really is a lot of discussion regarding how this test fits into advanced diagnostic protocols. More research is needed, and there's some of that information in the issue itself. 
Scoring systems, for this, you're gonna need some kind of tool, something like MD Calc to pull up and take a look at either the Timmy score, the Grace score, the Heart score, the one that has shown the most promise in the emergency department for undifferentiated chest pain has been the Heart score. And that's becoming the basis for a lot of diagnostic protocols. That's the one I recommend using, but there are other circumstances where a Grace or a Timmy score in someone with known coronary disease may still be helpful. And then lastly, imaging. Everyone gets a CT coronary arteriography study to rule out PE dissection and coronary thrombosis. No, I'm just kidding. In this case, a chest x-ray is a basic element of imaging for chest pain. CT angiography can be considered, although this is really guided by your clinical gestalt. If you're worried about PE, you're getting a CT pulmonary angiogram. If you have access to coronary CT evaluation, you're welcome to use it. I would recommend using it as some kind of diagnostic protocol. There isn't yet good evidence that all patients with chest pain need to have one of these screening evaluations. And echocardiography, whether point of care or formal by an echo tech, is also helpful, but not recommended for every single patient. Your gestalt is what's going to guide when these tests are necessary. Part 6. Medications. Some of you may remember the era of MONA, M-O-N-A, morphine, oxygen, nitrates, and aspirin. And really, that's become the era of NAH. It's really just the nitrates and aspirin. Morphine is only recommended after nitroglycerin and other anti-ischemic medications have already been given and there is persistent chest pain. These people are going off to the cath lab, have severe continuous pain, and opiates are really only useful in that scenario. Oxygen is now only recommended by the AHA and the ACC if saturations are less than 90%. There is some conflicting evidence about the harm that oxygen might induce, but needless to say, the guidelines say give the oxygen only if the patient's hypoxic. Nitroglycerin, we encourage everyone to use it, right? Sublingual or IV, giving it as a bolus or an infusion. Really, this is guided by the clinical scenario, but it's given for pain. It can be given for hypertension or in a hypertensive emergency or for acutely decompensated congestive heart failure or critical pulmonary edema. There are lots of reasons to give this medication. Don't give it if there's a history of recent phosphodiesterase inhibitor use, that's the drugs like sildenafil and Viagra, or at least be very careful. And if you're dealing with somebody who has an inferior MI, just watch that blood pressure very carefully. This subset of patients is very sensitive to the nitroglycerin effects. Aspirin, we're gonna give. Everybody gets aspirin. It reduces MACE in all patients presenting with MI, all types, all classes. It's a class 1A recommendation indefinitely, meaning patients will continue it daily forever in all patients who have experienced acute coronary syndrome. Pretty much aspirin forever. Now, there are other antiplatelet agents, and this becomes important, especially if you're dealing with someone who's aspirin allergic. You've got options. We've got clopidogrel, or Plavix is the trade name, Ticagrelor, or Berlinta, and Prasagril, or Effiant. Now, the choice between these three is really determined between you and your cardiology colleagues, or you and your tertiary referral center where you send your cardiac patients, but there are some general guidelines. Clopidogrel is recommended with aspirin in NSTEMI. 
it actually further reduces MACE, but not mortality in NSTEMI. So it can be continued in those patients who have aspirin sensitivity, and it shows the same benefits as aspirin in patients with coronary disease. And if you combine it with aspirin, there is a little bit extra benefit, but it doesn't have to be given immediately on arrival. Ticagrelor has been shown to have a lower incidence of MACE than clopidogrel among those patients with acute coronary syndrome. One study even showed an increased risk of bleeding, but others have not really borne that out. Additionally, it's been shown to be superior in patients who have a planned invasive study coming, uh, and that effect persists for up to 30 days and even out to a year, so it is recommended by the AHA and the ACC, uh, but it doesn't have to be given emergently in the ED. Prazogrel is another option, uh, again, currently not recommended prior to heart gaff because of a study showing that it increases the bleeding risk without a benefit of MACE reduction. So a more recent study found it to be superior to ticagrelor, but it was given after angiography, and again, it's not applicable to the ED. So putting it all together, the American College of Emergency Physicians actually recommends just aspirin as the only antiplatelet to be given in the ED because of the excessive bleeding complications. It is wise really to allow our cardiology colleagues to guide specific antiplatelet agent use beyond the aspirin. So your institutional guidelines, meeting with your cardiologists, your internal protocols will dictate, okay, are you going to give ticagrelor or clopidogrel to STEMI patients only or to all NSTEMIs pre or post cath? There's a lot of different options here and we leave that up to our interventional colleagues to guide. Additionally, there is a class of antiplatelet agents known as the 2B3A inhibitors. These are medications like, well, most of these are really unpronounceable, but I'll give it a try. Eptifbatide is the generic name for Integralin, and Tyrofaban is the generic name for Agristat. Both of these have been found to reduce MACE, again, when given prior to angiography, but they're rarely used in the ED setting, they can be deferred to cardiology to make the decision once the coronary anatomy is known and the timing doesn't have to be as soon as they hit the door. So once again, aspirin for sure, and then whatever your institutional guidelines dictate. Now, interestingly, if you live in a rural area, somewhere where you don't have a cath lab 24-7 or a cardiologist you can call on and you have to refer people to a tertiary care center, it's a good idea to have someone from your institution reach out to them and create a regional guideline. This is just a guideline that says, when we send you someone with an NSTEMI, it's understood that we're going to give these drugs, X, Y, and Z, until they get to you, at which time you will determine the need for anything else. And this becomes really helpful. Because one of the other medications that we talk about are the heparins, or the anticoagulants. And in general, there is pretty good evidence that this category of medication is beneficial even when it's combined with antiplatelet agents like aspirin. They were actually first proven to be of use back in 1996, and back then they were shown to have a 33% reduction in MACE in patients with NSTEMI when it's combined with aspirin. Now, this particular category of heparins comes in multiple forms. We have enoxaparin, or Lovenox, the trade name. We have Fondaparinux, or Arixtra, which is actually synthetic. And we have bivalarudin, or Angiomax, also synthetic. 
The synthetic low molecular weights can be given to patients who are heparin allergic. The low molecular weight standard, enoxaparin, can be given as a single dose in the ED and doesn't have to be repeated for 12 hours, depending on renal function. And then, of course, there's always just the heparin infusion, the standard unfractionated heparin infusion. Lastly, two more medicines I want to mention, beta blockers. There is a benefit to this class of medications. Some of you will remember back when we used to give this to patients in the ED with uh, elevated biomarkers and worrisome ECGs, and we would give them IV loading doses and their first oral dose. Well, there's a reason why others are scratching their head and saying, what? I've never heard of this. That's because we don't do this anymore. There is evidence that the parenteral injection in the ED can actually lead to an increase in cardiogenic shock. And unless you're sitting there running down the list of risk factors with the patients, the benefit from this medication is actually if it's administered in the first 24 hours and there's no reason to give it immediately. Now, those risk factors for cardiogenic shock are things like age over 70, uh, hypotension or systolic blood pressure even less than 120, heart rate greater than 110, or a history of congestive heart failure. And even in the patient who has no risk factors, they've still got about a 1% risk of shock, and that increases to about 8% for patients who have two or more of these risk factors. So the guidelines from the AHA and ACC, and even from the European Society of Cardiology, recommend that beta blockers be given sometime in the first 24 hours, but not necessarily in the ED. Lastly, there are the statins. These are the HMG-CoA reductase inhibitors, and they have also been shown to be helpful if given in the first 24 hours, especially in those patients who are, quote, statin-naive. That means they've never had them before. Uh, there is some suggestion that in this particular category of patients, the statins might even be helpful prior to catheterization, but more study is needed. So for the time being, we're not giving these in the emergency department. And that's really all the medications at our disposal. So let's review real quick. Oxygen for those patients who are hypoxic with a SAT less than 90%. Aspirin, we're going to give to everybody. Nitroglycerin, sublingual IV bolus or infusion, we use it liberally. Opiates like morphine are used very conservatively. And then antiplatelet agents and other anticoagulants really after discussion with cardiology. There is a lot of evidence that these medications are helpful, and other than administering one of the heparins, the rest of these medication decisions need to be left up to our cardiology colleagues or whatever institutional guideline we have set up. Part 7, Revascularization. Revascularization. That includes everything from bypass to heart cath with angioplasty. How do we decide which patient population needs to emergently go for some kind of revascularization procedure? The guidelines recommend that this happens in patients with NSTEMI, that's non-ST segment elevation MI, who also show signs of clinical instability. And in this list, they include things like refractory angina, sustained ventricular dysrhythmias, new or worsening heart failure, or shock. And actually, both the AHA and the European guidelines recommend taking these people to the cath lab emergently. Otherwise, there's no clear benefit to the immediate revascularization on all of our non-STEMI patients. Those at high risk actually do better at six months if they undergo early procedural intervention, which is really now we're talking about 14 to 24 hours. So even then, this is after they've left the ED, hopefully. 
This is a great time to have a conversation with your cardiologists about other risk stratification tools. So we mentioned earlier that we use the heart score in the ED for the undifferentiated chest pain patient, but there are the other scoring systems, Grace and Timmy, both of which have shown to be helpful in deciding when to take someone to cath. And a lot of it is based on prior known coronary anatomy, ECG changes, and troponins. For example, a GRACE score over 140 and new ST depressions with a troponin increase of greater than 20% in a patient who has been diagnosed with NSTEMI, these are criteria that suggest a patient should be taken to heart cath. But this is not a decision that you and I are going to make. This is a conversation with our cardiology and interventional colleagues. Part 8, Special Populations. And finally, I want to talk about the last section of the issue titled The Specials. In this area, we talk about four different categories of patients. First is women. Now, men are twice as likely to have acute coronary syndrome. And women who have acute coronary syndrome have higher short-term mortality. But the guidelines from the AHA and the American College of Cardiology do not recommend differentiating management of NSTEMI based on gender. So we acknowledge that women have a higher short-term mortality, but we're not changing our management specifically based on gender. The second category is black patients. This is quite striking. There's a higher incidence of MI compared to white patients. There is the same male predominance, and there is data showing that black men have more MIs than white men. If they're age 35 to 44, the rate of MI for a black man is two and a half out of a thousand patients. In the same population of white men, it's 0.8. If we look at the elderly population, 75 to 84 years of age, black men suffer almost 16 MIs per thousand. And for white men, that number is nine. So there is certainly a higher incidence that we need to keep in mind. Another interesting fact is that the risk for black women is lower than that for black men, but still higher than all gender of white patients. So again, there is still a increased incidence based on race. And one more fact that I found completely disheartening. Mortality is higher following MI for black patients than white patients. Black patients are actually less likely to undergo invasive management in non-STEMI. But this difference goes away when we look at STEMI. And truth is, we don't know exactly why it exists, but it certainly suggests the presence of some kind of racial bias. And it also suggests that if we had some kind of unambiguous standard, as the article states, and a protocol for management, that we could actually mitigate some of this racial bias. The third category of special patients is young patients. One study found up to 10% of MIs occur in patients less than 45 years old. And in this subgroup, risk factor reduction is a huge focus because up to 90% of patients are smokers. Other risks, other risks include things like a family history of high cholesterol, obesity, and cocaine use. Speaking of cocaine use, this issue makes a special point to say that the guidelines don't differentiate this subset of patients from any other. We treat them as any other acute coronary syndrome presentation, with the exception 
that we use benzodiazepines to treat cocaine chest pain in addition to all the other medications in our armamentarium. So we are reaching for the benzodiazepines first. And the last population is the diabetics. Now, you know this already, so we're just going to reinforce that diabetics have a higher incidence of MACE and mortality due to atypical presentations and a delay in diagnosis. And this is actually worse for the insulin-dependent diabetics. So that becomes a key historical differentiator when you're doing your initial assessment of the patient. Well, gang, that's the end of the 2020 issue for Amplify. I hope you've enjoyed listening. Before I sign off, I'd like to take just a couple of minutes in this segment I call Sam's Corner to share something about me with you. 2019 was a difficult year. And one of the things that made it difficult was the loss of a partner. For 15 years, I worked alongside a gentleman with just a fantastic yearning for life. Uh, He was an outstanding physician and an outstanding father and husband, and unfortunately succumbed to cancer early in life. As I look back on his joy for life and the presence that he brought to the emergency department at every shift, the way that he elevated people's moods, and the way that he set everyone at ease, it really makes me reflect on my own practice and my own life. It's the beginning of a new year. There are going to be lots of stressors, I'm sure, in 2020. And it's a good reminder to just slow down and keep things in perspective. The work that you do in the emergency department is very important. And you make great sacrifices to be there for your patients. And we do appreciate it. Your patients appreciate it. And your family knows the sacrifices that you make. The impressions that we make are on more than just our patients. We make impressions, lasting impressions, on our colleagues, on our consultants, really on everyone who's working around us. My partner brought an air of comfort and joy to the emergency department and consistently provided that atmosphere for everyone around him. Bill was a great man, and Bill created the environment that he wanted to work in wherever he went, because he took it with him. And that's a valuable lesson I learned from him. So today, I just want to remind you that we can make a difference not only in the lives of our patients, but in the lives of our colleagues. We can leave those lasting impressions, and we can create the environment that we yearn for ourselves. We can do that at work. We can certainly do that at home. The emergency department is a stressful, busy place, and we know it. But that doesn't have to define us or our practice. Take a moment, take a deep breath, and create that atmosphere that you want for yourself and for your patients. Thank you, Bill, for teaching me that valuable lesson. I will miss you. Thanks, everyone, for listening to the January issue of Amplify. I want to remind you to click on the link in the show notes or on the website and take our survey. Your feedback really is very valuable to me and to everyone at EV Medicine. 
And also to remind you to log on to the website, take a look at the resources you have at your disposal, read the valuable emergency medicine practice issue and the pediatric emergency medicine practice issue. Until next month, stay safe.